0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Carol Ann Flood, and I'm the worship director here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our mission is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life, or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help you draw near to the person of Jesus, be challenged and encouraged by His Word, and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you are in Him. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. It's great to be back with you. If you're watching with us online, great to have you tuning in with us as well. We have been walking through this, the big story of Scripture, and that's what we've been doing is talking about God's story of how He pursues us. And something that's really true, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, is that great stories, all great stories, need struggle. You have to have struggle in order for it to be an epic story. For it it to be a story you would want to actually pay money and go to see on the big screen, for it to be a a novel that you would want to read, a great story has to have struggle. And that's true of our individual stories, our our personal stories as well. If, If my personal story was, well, I started out winning... And then uh, I just kept winning again and again and again. So then I just became super successful. And then everything I planned basically happened exactly the way I planned it. And then unexpected twist, I won the lottery and I married the prom queen. If that's my story, you don't wanna hear that story, do you? In fact, it's almost like a visceral reaction we have to those stories. You wanna punch me in the face if I tell you that's my life story, don't you? We don't wanna hear that kind of story. Uh, Because a great story, any sort of epic great story, involves the main character to experience a valley, a struggle, a breakdown of some kind, and then an overcoming of that struggle. That's what makes for a great story. Have you ever wondered why that's what we like in a great story? Uh, Have you ever wondered why is it that we're hardwired to respond to that kind of a story? I would tell you I believe it's because that's our story. That's the story of humanity. That's the story that we find ourselves in. And so uh, what we've been doing for the last uh, few weeks is we've been looking at the original design of Scripture. The the story of the Bible begins in a garden where everything is the way that God designed it to be. And so we've talked about God's design for our world, for ourselves as image bearers, as human beings, and our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. Today, we're going to talk about where it all broke down, where it all fell apart. And so I want to invite you to join me one more time in the Garden of Eden. We've been spending a lot of this series in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. So this is Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to start this morning. Starting in verse 16, this is part of the relationship of how God created the first humans. It says this, And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So the story that that we find ourselves in right here at the very, very beginning of Scripture is that God creates human beings and then he gives them a choice. Right in the Garden of Eden, human beings have a choice. They have the opportunity to choose some other way than the way that God design them to live in relationship with him. Now, a lot of people ask the question, well, why is that? Why would God create it that way? It's almost like he sets, you know, human beings up to fail. Why would God want to do that? And the the simplest way I can think of to to describe why that is, is because of the nature of love itself. Uh, Love actually requires a choice. And that's the kind of relationship God wants to have with us is is a a relationship that's based in love. So if there is no choice, it isn't actually love. It can't be deterministic. There has to be a choice because that's the nature of love relationships. So if, if I could force my wife Carrie to love me, that wouldn't really be love, would it? It would be something, there would be some basis of a relationship, but it wouldn't be based on love because for us to have an actual love relationship, it requires a choice. And so there's this choice for the people in the Garden of Eden, for Adam and Eve. And what happens here, the breakdown of the story, it's, it's a lot more complicated than we make it out to be. We say, well, basically what happened is people just disobeyed God, They just chose a different way than him. But actually, it's quite a bit more complicated than that. What actually happens in the Garden of Eden is not just plain, simple disobedience. What actually happens is that they believe a lie. They believe a lie. And that lie is actually what plants the seeds and starts the whole breakdown of the story uh, where it it goes. And that's what we're going to look at this morning Several years ago, uh, I was actually, um, there was a a snow forecast coming. It was this time of year, and we had like round after round after round of snow that was being forecast. And so what I did is I took my snow shovel, and I went outside. I knew the first round of snow had just come, so I went out and I, I shoveled off my driveway, shoveled off the sidewalk in front of my house. And then because I knew there were more rounds of snow coming, basically I took my snow shovel and I just stuck it, In the snow drift, you know what I mean, at the end of our driveway. It looked kind of like this. I just stuck the snow shovel just standing up, and I did that so there would be easy access. Right? So the next round of snow comes, I can just run out there and grab the snow shovel. So the next round of snow comes, I get on my hat, I get on my gloves, I get on my coat, I walk outside. Where's my snow shovel? my snow shovel is gone. I can't find my snow shovel. I, I left it sticking right there in that snowdrift, And so I looked around for a few minutes. I couldn't find my snow shovel. And so I came to the inevitable conclusion, I think that any one of us in that moment would come to, that one of my filthy neighbors must have stolen my $10 Walmart special snow shovel. I was furious. I remember just standing there like looking around like, which one of you was it? <laughs> I went in the house, and this is a story I started telling my family. I'm like, somebody stole my snow shovel, and my wife was not so convinced. She was like, really? I, I don't know. Are you sure you didn't just lose it? No, somebody stole my snow shovel. I was so convinced this was true, I went to the store, and I bought a second snow shovel so that I could finish, you know, shoveling off uh, my driveway. I remained bitter about it, wondering which one of my neighbors did this. Weeks go by, it's now the spring thaw, the snow is melting, and one day my son, Andrew, who was a little boy at the time, is standing looking out the front window, and he sees something sticking out of the snow drift at the end of the driveway. And he says, "Dad, come here." And I come over, and we're both standing looking out the window, and he says, "It's your snow shovel." And I look out, and, sure enough, there is, is my snow shovel laying down. It's been uncovered as the snow is melting. And suddenly it dawns on me what really happened in that moment was that second round of snow came over, the wind must have knocked down the snow shovel, and then it just got buried under there. It was there the whole time. And my son Andrew says, Dad, our filthy neighbors must have returned the snow shovel and put it right back there. (laughs) And I said, that's exactly right, boy. That's what happened. Now, don't tell your mother about any of this. Isn't it true, if you think about your life, you think about my life, that a lie believed will affect you as if it were true? Any lie that we believe has power if we believe it as just the same as if it were true, if you don't know the truth, if you, if you actually set off on this uh, in your mind with a lie, it leads you to down a certain pattern of thought, it leads you to make decisions, and it leads you to act on those decisions. For most of us, again and again and again, it becomes like a well-formed pathway, a neural pathway that we just keep walking down again and again and again. A lie that's believed will affect you the same as if it was true. That's the power it has in our lives. And that's exactly the story that happens in the Garden of Eden with the first human beings. Let's look at this together. This is Genesis 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The the lie that the serpent tells the woman is right here on this screen. I want you to notice something. The serpent doesn't tell a lie about creation. The the lie isn't about the relationship Eve has with creation, with the created world. The, The lie has to do with her relationship with who? With God. That's what Satan goes after, is that relationship that Eve has with God that's what he, he wants to attack. That's what he wants to go after. And if I could sum up, well, what is the lie? If we could boil it down, if we could sum it up in one simple phrase, this is my best attempt to try to sum it up in one simple phrase. Uh, the lie is that God is holding out on you. God's holding out on you. Really? Did God actually say, don't eat the, the tree? He, he's holding out on you, he just doesn't want you to have the best. He doesn't want you to have all the things that you could have. Basically, you could do a better job than God running your own life. And so the the pathway, if you believe the lie, if she believes the lie, God must be holding out on you. The best life, the best things he must be keeping from you. Therefore, be your own God. Embrace your own truth. You run your own life. You take matters into your hands. You do it for yourself because God is holding out on you. You can't trust him. That's the essence of the lie that God tells Eve. Now, the reason I'm going through so much trouble to tell you that and to define that for you and to make it so clear is because that is the exact same lie that Satan is whispering every single day in your ear and in my ear. If there's one good thing we can say about Satan, I don't know if there's anything good you can say about the devil, but if there's one good thing you can say about him, it would be that he has no new tricks. He doesn't do anything new. He hasn't come up with anything new. The same thing he did to Eve is the same thing he wants to do to you and he wants to do to me. He wants to go after the relationship you have with your heavenly father and he wants to whisper this lie. God must be holding out on you. He's holding out on you. He, do, he doesn't really have your best in mind. He's got his own uh, kind of thing. He's holding back from you. And so you've got to be your own God. You've got to go after things yourself. So let's explore this for a moment, shall we? Let's just talk a little bit about how this lie affects our lives. How if it gets planted in our heads and if we begin to believe it, if it becomes the neural pathway that we just walk down again and again and again, uh, here's the impact that it has on our lives. Scripture talks about how there are these three main areas. Again and again, you see these three main areas appear all the way through the Bible. These three areas of our lives that are impacted by the lie uh, that God must be holding out on you. Um, Maybe one of the most clear places in all of Scripture where those three areas are defined is in the New Testament in 1 John 2, 16, where it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But maybe a simpler way to just kind of put it into into three words is, is passion, provision, and position. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. By the way, these three areas are the same three areas where Jesus is tempted, Early on in Jesus' ministry, Matthew 4, Luke 4, both, Jesus goes out into the wilderness where he faces three temptations from the enemy. And guess which three they are? It's these three. Passion. This has to do with our physical desires. It has to do with with the ways in which we have needs, we have physical desires. And so the lie becomes, well, God's holding out on you. You can't trust him. This is what pornography offers us. This is what binge eating, drugs, alcohol, that's what this offers us. This area of provision. This has to do with money. It has to do with uh, the things that we see with our eyes, the things that we want. It has to do with Amazon shopping and massive amounts of consumer debt. The, the ways in which we kind of buy into this lie that I I'm I'm going to have to provide for myself. I, and there's never enough. There's never enough. I'm never secure. I have to take matters into my own hands. And then this third area is this area of position. It has to do with our significance. It has to do with how we're valued by others. This is what, you know, constant obsessing over our image on social media offers us. This somehow desire to control the way other people perceive us, control the way that we're seen by others, and to prove ourselves constantly to other people and get our value and our worth from that. Passion, provision, and position. Three distinct areas of our lives where all of us struggle. But it's the same, what I want you to see is it's the same lie with all three areas. God must be holding out on you he's not really after your best interest. He you can't trust him. So be your own god. Live your truth. Embrace whatever it is that makes most sense to you. You've got to take matters into your own hands. You have to live it out. You can't trust him. That's the lie. And this lie affects us. It affects everybody. And by the way, if you think for one second that it doesn't affect pastors, it doesn't affect people like me, you're crazy. This last week, not this past week, the week before, uh, I got COVID again, second time I've had it, um, and the first you know, the first time was rough physically. This time wasn't as, as bad physically, but I'll tell you, uh, the, the mental health battle I went through last week, I, I'm out of my isolation and everything, and my, my quarantine now and everything, don't worry, but th- those days where I was at home, I don't know if it was just the time of year, uh, Or just the fact that it was just kind of having to go through this again and, and, you know, canceling events. Carrie and I were going to take a trip to see uh, some friends from, uh, from a place we used to live, and we had to cancel it. I don't know what it was, but I just found myself in this, like, pit of despair. And I'll just tell you, that's not normally me. I mean, just the thoughts, the battle that was happening in my mind, the way the enemy... You know, I'll just be honest. I think I've kind of underestimated... The, like the spiritual and the mental attack that, that has gone along with like the isolation and the quarantines and, and everything that we've kind of battled with covid i mean for many of us we we've struggled with our thoughts we struggle with i mean i had all these thoughts going through my head like man you're worthless you're never going to do anything good for god again those are the thoughts i, I was battling in my head and in fact, I, what I began to do is I just began to write down some, some things in my journal. I'm just going to share with you. These are just a few things. Uh, about a week and a half ago, I wrote down in my uh, journal right in the midst of that quarantine. I wrote this down. Why do I keep falling for the same temptation? Maybe you can relate to that. I don't fall for different temptations. I just fall for the same one again and again and again. Why do I, why do I always have to be right? It's a huge thing for me. In arguments, you know, with family members or whatever, like, I have to be right. I have to show I'm right. Next one, why do I care so much about how I appear to others? Why is that such a big deal to me? The way way that I look, the way that I uh, appear to be successful. And then lastly, why do I want what they have? Why am I always looking at somebody else and I want what they have? And these are the things I was writing down as I was just kind of struggling. Uh, These are my questions. Maybe yours are a little bit different. But I bet you've asked questions like this of your life as well. And what I felt like the Holy Spirit just spoke to me as I was just, I was just wrestling through that and I was praying is I felt like God just said, Brian, it's because you believe a lie. Every single one of those questions, every one of those areas on, that I, I just put on that screen touches a wounded place in my life, a place where I have questioned, is God really there for me? Is he holding out on me? Does he really want my best? Is he really gonna provide? And if not... Why do I always have to be right? Because I've got to save myself. Why do I have to appear good to others? Because that's my only hope of being my own God, is controlling the way I appear. Why do I keep falling for the same temptation? Because I believe the lie, the same as you, the same as all of humanity. This is our story. For all of us, it's our story. We believe this lie to the core of our beings that God must be holding out on us, and it becomes this well-worn pathway that, that we keep walking down. And when we keep walking down, it eventually, it always leads to sin. That's the only thing that a lie that, that lie can give birth to in our lives is sin. It can't give birth to anything good. a lie believed as if it's the truth will always impact us as if it was true. And when we believe that lie, when we allow that to penetrate our thoughts, that God must be holding out on me, that when it comes to the passions, the provisions, and the position of my life, I have to provide for myself, I have to be my own God, it always gives birth to sin. It always does. I really love the way Ignatius, who's one of the early church fathers of our faith, very, very early on, Ignatius, this is the way that he defined sin you want to know what sin is? He said, sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Do you see the lie in it? The lie is God must be holding out on me. What he wants for me is not my deepest happiness. And whenever we believe that, it always gives birth to sin. It always leads down this path of sin. In fact, if, if you think about it, most things in our lives that become sin or become like addictions that people wrestle with, they're not usually like bad things. I mean, you think about like sex, food, uh, even like money, provision, all, those things are not necessarily bad within themselves. They're, they're basic needs that all of us have. It's, it's when they become ultimate things. Because somehow we're trying to be our own God. We're trying to make those things somehow rescue us, save us, prop us up. So that we can harvest value and identity from those things. That's when they become addiction. That's when they become sin. And that's when they break our lives. Because that's not the way we were intended to live. That's not the way we were intended to interact with God. It's not what he dreamed for us. And and this is the human story. And so... Now that you are all thoroughly depressed, (laughs) let's turn the corner here a little bit on this sermon, and let's just ask the question, why do we keep believing the lie? So why does it work? Why has Satan literally not had to change his tactics ever? Why does it still work on us? Two thoughts I want to give you today, and I'm just really praying that this is going to be something that will set some of you free, but the first one is this. The first reason that we keep believing the lies is we don't know the truth. We don't know the truth. The second one is that we don't understand the relationship that we have with our Father. We don't know the truth, and we don't understand the relationship we have with our Father. We'll start here. We don't know the truth. How do you combat a lie? The way you combat a lie is with by replacing it with the truth, right? And not just one time, Again, if we've believed a lie again and again and again, it's formed like a neural pathway. There's this constant path that we walk down, these constant things that we believe that lead to the the same decisions, the same actions, the same problems. So it's like we have to combat it with the truth again and again and again until the truth actually becomes the new neural pathway, the new uh, direction our minds go whenever we're struggling, whenever we're finding ourselves in a dark place. Jesus actually talked about this. It's one of the most powerful passages uh, in the New Testament. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having this fascinating conversation with the religious leaders of his day, and he's, he literally begins talking to them about Satan. You can go read it. What he says, he's talking about the same Satan, the, the serpent that approached Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he says, Satan is the father of lies. That's what he calls him. He's the father of all lies, he's, and, and every time he speaks, Jesus says, It's like when he lies, he's speaking his native language. In other words, like if his lips are moving at all, he's lying. That's the only thing he can do. That's the only thing that can come out of his mouth. And then Jesus makes this profound statement in verse 31 and 32. He says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, you know what's such a shame about this passage right here? We misquote Jesus all the time on this passage. You hear people do it all the time. Inside the church and outside the church, this has become like a famous phrase. The truth will set you free. Did you know that? Just the, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. That's actually not what Jesus says. You see it? What he actually says is when you know the truth, the truth can set you free. The truth can't just set you free. In the same way, a lie believed as if it was the truth will affect you the same as if it was true. In the same way, until you know the truth, to the core of your being, the truth cannot set you free. Here's why that's so significant. The word know there, in the original Greek language, when Jesus says, then you will know the truth, the, the word he chooses there is the Greek word "gnosko." Now, ginosko doesn't just mean Information. It doesn't just mean, hey, I memorized some information, I know some data. That's not what that word means. When it talks about knowing, it's referring to a deep, intimate, relational knowing. In fact, not to be weird or anything, but uh, oftentimes the way that word is used at other places in the New Testament is to talk about like, sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. And this, like a husband knew his wife, or the wife knew her husband, that's the way that word is oftentimes used. And that's the word Jesus says, you have to know the truth. It's like this deep, intimate knowing to the core of your being. You have to know the truth. And when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. That's, that's what we have to do. And and, and so what is that truth? Jesus doesn't just kind of leave it right there. What's amazing about that is that if you go forward a few chapters into John chapter 14 in the Bible, what you encounter is Jesus makes this profound statement where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How do you combat the lies, the lies of the father of lies? You have to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what is the truth? Jesus says, I am the That truth. Jesus doesn't just have some truth. He is the truth. He is the very truth that we need to come against the lies of the enemy in our lives. He is that truth that we have to have in our lives if we're going to combat the lie that God is holding out on you that leads to sin every single time and leads to brokenness and problems everywhere in our lives. Jesus literally is that truth we're supposed to come to Him when we're struggling. We're supposed to come to Him in times where we're doubting who God is and His goodness to us. We're supposed to come to Him in those moments where we've broken down, where we've sinned, where we've fallen short. Jesus says, you got to come to me. If the lie in the garden, and the lie that still gets whispered to us today is God is holding out on you, then what happens is when we come to Jesus, when we look to Jesus, what we see is God in Jesus giving his best. God sparing nothing, holding nothing back from us, but Jesus becoming flesh, coming to this earth. And then what we see in Jesus' death on the cross, sacrificially, and in his resurrection is God saying, you are my best. I am pursuing you. I'm holding nothing back. I'm coming after you with everything I've got. It's a lie that God is holding back from you. That He's holding something back. He's not holding out on us. You have to know the truth. And then the second reason we don't ever break free from the lie is, is that we don't understand the relationship that we have with our Father. We don't understand this relationship that we have with our Father. We we think somehow that God is sort of like standing back, like, well. at You You weren't able to do that on your own? That's disappointing. It's almost like he's like this cosmic, you know, coach with a stopwatch, and every time we run around the track, he just goes a little faster. Pick it up. Really? That's the father we think we have? We we have this image of God, like he's this horrible person. And, And what we know is that what the gospel tells us is that when we do know the truth, when we do know Christ, when we've come and we've put our lives completely in his hands, what the Bible tells us is that we are adopted into the family of God by the blood of Jesus, by what he did for us. And so you are now a dearly loved son. You are a child of God. You are a daughter of the most high. That's what it tells us. For most of us, we walk around our lives every single day and we don't even understand that. We don't understand the access we have. We don't understand the kind of father we have. In December, about a month ago, I took my son John to uh, rent music right here on Plainfield. John's uh, 13. It was a couple weeks before Christmas. It was about a month before his birthday. John's 14th birthday was on January 18. And John has been learning how to play guitar. And uh, it's just been such a joy, just like teaching him and playing guitar with him. He's been playing with the youth band here at NowGen and just kind of growing into that. But he, he, he doesn't have his own guitar. He's been using his brother's guitar. And so what I did is in December, I took him in to Rip Music so we could get a guitar strap for him, like his own guitar strap. And so we're standing there looking at guitar straps. And all of a sudden, he looks across the room. He looks into the acoustic guitar room where all the nice acoustic guitars are hanging on the wall. And he, da- he goes, Dad look at that guitar. And he sees across the room, this black Taylor 214 CE guitar. And uh, immediately like he he drops the guitar straps, right? and We walk over, we go into the acoustic guitar room. He takes this guitar off the wall and he's like, dad, look at this guitar. And he begins to play this guitar and it sounds amazing on him. And it sounds, as he's playing it, it just sounds incredible. And we're looking at it. It's got the newer electronics. It's got everything. And then he turns the price tag over, right? And you could just see his shoulder slump. It was just like, oh. And he goes, man, that's, that's way too expensive. And he was right. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is way too expensive. And, he, and then I'll never forget it. He just kind of goes, well, and I'm probably not good enough yet for a guitar like this. He didn't even ask me. It's two weeks before Christmas. It's a month before his birthday. He doesn't even say, what do you think, Dad? Could you, could you get it for me? It's too expensive. I'm probably not good enough. Hangs it up, and we went, and we got in the car to drive away. What John did not know in that moment is I had already made the decision to buy that guitar for him. I went back the next day. There was another guy who would come in. He, was, he had, I had an eye on it. I bought it right out from under him. I didn't even care. I'm a pastor. I didn't care. (laughs) I put it in my office and I counted down the days until his birthday on January 18. I brought it home and I said, "John, he's 14. He's too way too old to this." I said, "John, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go in the other room. I want you to sit down. I want you to shut your eyes tight and cover your ears." He's like, "Dad, are you serious?" Come I'm like, go in the other room, sit down. He literally goes in the other room, shuts his eyes like this, and he's sitting there like this on the couch. And then I got out my phone, and I said, which one of you to his brothers is going to take a video of this? Because I want a video of this. <laughs> it ended up being Danielle, my oldest son's fiance, is taking a video while I, and I'm not going to show you the video. John didn't want me to show you the video, but I brought this guitar in, and I set it down in front of him, and I, you know, there's this big moment where I say, now open your eyes, and he sees... That he's got this Taylor guitar. Now, why did I do that? Why did I go through that all the silliness of that? Why did I go through that whole extreme thing? The reason I went through all of that was so that I could see the look on his face when he realized his dad came through. That his dad cared that much to go get it. I don't know who got the bigger gift in that moment. If it was him or if it was me. I don't know which one. Why do I tell you that? Listen to me. You have to get this. I am an earthly father. I am a flawed, imperfect, earthly father. You have a heavenly father who adores you more than you could possibly understand. What did Jesus say? I love what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. This, is to me, is the most... Beautiful picture of, of, of the combat against the lie of the enemy. Jesus says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your he- Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Do you see what he's saying? You see what, what Jesus is drilling at there. He's trying desperately to get us to see you have a heavenly father, not an earthly father. As much as we, we love our kids as earthly fathers, you have one, maybe you didn't have a great earthly father, you have a heavenly father. There's something to the core of your being, there's something to the core of every single one of us that wants that so desperately. We want that kind of a relationship with a father. That's what you have. Do you really think he's holding out on you? Do you really think... That's the situation that you're in. When you are in Christ, when you know the truth, the biggest problem with our sin, the biggest problem with our addictions, the biggest li- you know, problem with the lies that we believe is we do not understand the kind of father that we have. He sent his best in Jesus to redeem you and to reconcile you at the cross and through the resurrection and his arm is not short. He can do immeasurably more than anything you could ever ask or imagine according to his power that is at work inside of you. That's the kind of father you have. It It's time we started to act like it. Do you get this? It's time we started acting like it. So what's your ask of your heavenly father? What's the lie that you've been believing? What place in your life have you been trying to be your own God? Because I guess I'm on my own here. He couldn't possibly provide. It's too expensive, and I'm probably not good enough anyway. It's a lie. Last night, I just felt led as I was coming in here to pray. I just said, God, uh, what do you want me to do? And I just felt like he led me just to kind of put this simple Facebook post out and just pray for whoever uh, posted things. I spent quite a bit of time in here last night praying for a bunch of you, probably a bunch of you watching online. Maybe some of you are home even right now with Maybe you're going through COVID and you're going through a battle in your mind. I just felt like even just walking in this room and just praying last night, I just felt like what God said to me is, those are my kids. Those are my children. And they don't believe it. They don't even know what I'm capable of. So I I felt led to just close in this way. If you know, man, man, I've believed this lie God's holding out on me. That He must not have my best in mind. If you want to break the power of the lie in your life, if you want to take a stand today, I want to, I'm going to invite you to stand in a moment, if you mean this. Don't stand if you don't mean this. But here in the room, if you're physically here in the room, I want to pray over you. Whatever your ask is, Whatever it is that you feel like is too big for you, it's too, it's too much beyond you, but you need the power of God in your life, I want to invite you right now, if this, if this is you, I want to pray over you. I want to invite you to stand as a symbolic way of saying, I'm breaking the lie. I'm, I'm not going to believe this anymore, that God is holding out on me and that his goodness is not for me. If that's you, I want you to make a bold move and stand in this room. Praise God. If you're watching online, there's a way for you to do this online as well. Just to symbolically stand. Just say, I'm done with that lie. I'm done believing it. I'm done walking down this same pathway again and again and again. I want what only God can give. That's you. Let us know. Let's pray. Jesus, We just come before you in this place. You are mighty and powerful to save. And we recognize that you are the truth. You didn't just have the truth. You didn't just know some truth. You are the ultimate truth that we need. I just pray for my brothers and sisters right now in this room, that they would know that they are sons and daughters of the most high, that they have a heavenly father whose arm is not short, and whose power is at work right now in their lives to, get, to do anything that they could ever ask or imagine, even greater than that. So right now, Jesus, we take a stand against the lie of the enemy, against this lie that, go, that cuts right to the heart of our relationship with you, our Heavenly Father, that you're holding out on us, that you don't want our best, and we just break the power of that lie right now in the name of Jesus. So right now, God, I just ask, whatever it is that's represented in each person standing here in the room, whatever is represented with each person standing symbolically online, whatever it is that's being asked, God, we commit it to you. We come to you for it. We come to you. We don't turn to ourselves. We don't turn to our world. We don't turn to our own devices. We don't turn to our own means or our own methods. We turn to you, knowing that you are are powerful enough to rescue and to redeem and to secure a hope and a future for us. And so we put our faith and our trust in you, the only one who can save. God, we confess our sin. We confess the way we've believed a lie. We confess the way we've turned away from you again and again and again and again. And we know that today you are a loving father who says it doesn't matter. I've paid the price for your sins. All of them, past, present, future, come to me. We hear the invitation to come to you. We thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. Would you set us free, break the power of the lies of our lives that we have believed of the enemy so that we can follow after you in the truth. That's what we want, Jesus, and we ask this in your powerful and risen and resurrected name and everyone said, amen. We hope this message encouraged you in seeing who God is and who you are in him. If you wanna take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com forward slash connect. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.